Cage 3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture Thursday, November 4th, 2010 Cardiac Output and AVO2 Difference Some of you have not been able to or did not get your articles back because for whatever reason you weren't in lab last Friday uh, was not able to get them to bring them today so you'll need to pick them up in lab tomorrow and I'll give you until Midnight Friday night. You can email your you can email your stuff to me. You don't have to print it out. You can just go ahead and email it to me. Okay, so that way you can get your uh, journal article one that had its comments on it. She'll have them in lab. Yep. Okay. So I'll leave you the rest of the day to. I would go ahead and write up based on what you think and what we discussed in class. And then just use that to do your last fine tuning, and then you can email it to me. Okay? Email you want to use a template? Yes. I can't write in the template. You can't write in the template. How come? I don't know. I try it. I use different computers and everything. I just can't write in the template. All right, it's a. Is it okay if it's outside the box? Like, it would have to be inside that box? Yeah, the whole, the whole point with that was to give you a certain size text box to make sure that you were concise and, and, and kept everything within a certain amount. Alright, let's do this. If you're having trouble with the template or the text box, you can write it in a Word document. Here are the rules. Nothing small, I'm getting old, nothing smaller than a 12-point font. Uh, nothing less than one-inch margins and nothing more than one page. Okay? Everybody, everybody clear on those? 12 point font, one inch margins, no more than one page. Okay? Because one of the points is, is to try to make you be concise and not just copy everything that's in the article into your, into your article, into your review. Okay? So there's a, there's a page limit. I'll have to work out the issues with the box, the text box thing. Am I clear on journal article number two? Okay. Uh, all right, let's continue our discussion of cardiovascular system, uh, particularly uh, cardiac output. Okay, so last time what we talked about was the first component of cardiac output, which was heart rate. All right, we looked at... Um, well, last time we also looked at patterns of response of VO2, cardiac output, heart rate, and stroke volume to steady state and um, <coughs> maximal exercise, okay? Incremental exercise up to max, okay? Make sure you're familiar with those patterns of response. Um, then we talked about factors that influence heart rate. What's the best way to figure out somebody's maximal heart rate? Measure it. Run them until they drop, measure it, okay? Uh, we discussed lots of other factors that influence heart rate. So now today we want to talk about the second component of cardiac output, and that's stroke volume. Heart rate is clearly important. Uh, stroke volume is the thing that probably changes the most with responses to exercise training, particularly endurance exercise training. All right. Now, stroke volume is obviously the amount of blood that is pumped out of the ventricle with each beat. Okay? 
Now, that doesn't mean it, that is all of the blood that is in the ventricle. In fact, we've got this particular equation right here where stroke volume is equal to end diastolic volume minus end systolic volume. Okay, so what's happening with the left ventricle during diastole? It's relaxing and what kind of hemodynamic or fluid mechanic thing is going on during diastole? Ventricular filling. Okay, blood is coming back from the, if, if we're talking about the left ventricle, blood is coming back from the pulmonary veins to the left atrium and then during ventricular diastole, the muscles relaxing and blood is flowing from the atrium, left atrium into the left ventricle, so it is filling. At the very end of diastole, that also marks the point in time at the very, the very beginning of systole, of contraction, okay? So at the end of diastole, there is a certain volume of blood that is in the ventricle. It is very common at rest that that volume of blood at the end of diastole is about 100 milliliters. Okay, about 100 milliliters. Okay, so end diastolic volume. All right, you get the onset of systole, ventricular systole. So the myocardium, the left ventricle contracts and it ejects blood out of the left ventricle. At the very end of systole, right at the point in time that's going to be the transition to the next resting phase, diastole, that is, there's a certain volume of blood that is going to be left in the ventricle. That is referred to as end systolic volume. It is very common at rest that that's about 30 milliliters. So your ventricle doesn't expel all of the blood that's in it. Okay? It fills with 100. There's about 30 left at the end of systole, so our stroke volume is about 70, okay? There's another way to express this. This is absolute amount, this is volumes, fills with 100 milliliters, pumps out 70 milliliters, so there's 30 mils left. There's another way to express this, and that is called ejection fraction. So it's expressed as a percentage. What's the percentage of blood that it's filled with that the ventricle will pump out? And at rest, it's pretty simple using those same figures because if we fill with 100, there's 30 left in there. That gives you 70. You divide by the original amount, which is 100, and that gives you 70%. Okay? So at rest, it's very common for our ejection fraction to be about 70%. So what that means is the left ventricle will contract with enough force to push out about 70% of the blood that's in it. Okay? Now, let's think of things that might cause stroke volume to increase. Let's say you filled with the same amount of blood, 100 mils but the heart muscle contracts with greater force. Is it likely to pump out a higher percentage? Yes, and so your ejection fraction goes up. That's one of the things that happens in the fight or flight response. You're getting ready to cross the street out here, you're not really paying attention, you're so excited to come to exercise physiology that you're not even paying attention to the traffic, 
So you step out, you almost get hit by a MARTA bus, you jump back up on the curb, your heart rate goes up. Is it also kind of pounding? Yes. yes. You're not getting any greater venous return yet. Okay, so the heart's filling with the same amount of blood, but because of the epinephrine and the norepinephrine from that fight or flight response, that triggers an enhanced contractility that makes that myocardium contract with greater force. And now it's going to push out 75, 80, 85%. Okay? So your stroke volume will go up. If you fill with 100 mils, your stroke volume goes up to 75 or 80 or 85 milliliters because the percentage has gone up. Okay? All right, so if 70 is about normal, uh, could there be conditions where ejection fraction is really low in terms of a percentage, where the heart muscle doesn't produce enough force? Yeah. That's a different issue. I'll talk about that in just a minute. It's a good, good point. But a, pardon? Malnutrition? Um, malnutrition could affect it if it got to the point where it actually caused myocardial damage. What other things might cause damage to the heart muscle? Pardon? Like hypothermia? Ah, it could be with hypothermia. Yeah, you could actually... Uh, 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 chill the heart down enough that that would happen. Okay, what else might cause heart damage? Hypertension, chronic hypertension it would be one. What's the most common thing that, that causes damage to the heart muscle and kills people in this country? Heart attacks. Okay, when you have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, there is some period of time or some area of the heart muscle that doesn't get an adequate amount of blood flow and it doesn't get an adequate amount of oxygen. It is very common for areas of heart muscle to actually die. All right? um, if the heart muscle dies, it doesn't regenerate much and it forms a scar. So if you've had a, a, a substantial heart attack, there is scar tissue in that muscle now and it doesn't produce as much force. And what you see, a very common test for people um, who've had heart attacks, is they put them in and do tests of their ejection fraction. And it's very common for people who, ha who have had heart attacks to see their ejection fraction at rest go down. Okay? When it goes down below 50%, that's considered impairment. And when it goes down below 35%, that's considered severe impairment. Right? So it's not uncommon to find people in cardiac rehab programs to see them, you know, when they come in, you do these tests, and their ejection fraction is way down because they've sustained a lot of damage to their heart muscle. Um, exercise training for those folks is very important, but in a lot of cases, particularly if it's actually damaged, uh, scarred heart muscle, their ejection fraction actually probably never comes back up to normal. Okay? So it's, that's permanent damage to the heart. There is some uh, condition that's called stunned myocardium, where when people have had some, uh, have had a heart attack, the heart muscle itself may have been damaged, but not damaged beyond repair. And given some period of time of recovery, that heart muscle will come back and some of this ejection fraction will come back, okay? But that can be very different for different cardiac rehab, uh, cardiac patients. Okay, so a couple of conditions, either heart muscle damage, 
or fight or flight response where even though the heart is filling with the same amount of blood, it's able to pump out more or less depending on this ejection fraction. Okay. Now, let me go back. There are going to be three major things that are going to, or three major categories, if you will, uh, of things that will influence car, uh, stroke volume. How much blood comes out of the ventricle. And we're, we're really going to focus on the left ventricle, but remember, the heart has paired chambers, so you're essentially talking about uh, blood coming out of the left ventricle and the right ventricle at the same time. Okay? But we're going to focus mostly on the left. All right, those three things are preload, afterload, and contractility. Preload are things that happen prior to systole. Afterloads, uh, uh, afterload is things that happen during or after systole. And then contractility has to do with the amount of force that the heart muscle produces. Okay, so let's do preload first. There is an important characteristic of heart muscle. In, in we had a <clears throat> we had a uh, stretch reflex and that stretch sort shortening cycle with skeletal muscle, right? If you want that muscle to produce a little more force, you stretch it and rapidly stretch it before you produce force, right? Heart muscle has a little bit of a similar response in that if you stretch the heart muscle, it will respond with a greater force of contraction. If you stretch it, greater force of, uh, uh, of contraction. How do we stretch the heart muscle? Pardon? Yeah, exercise, but what about what does the exercise cause with the blood? Fill it with more blood. Okay? So, here's what happens. And that's called venous return. If you can do something to get more blood flow back to the heart, the heart will fill with more blood, it stretches, and it contracts with greater force. Alright? So, increase blood flow back to the heart. Heart fills with more blood, so it stretches. That results in an increased force of contraction, which then results in an increased stroke volume. Fill with more blood, contract with more force, bigger stroke volume. Now, that's the same. It's, it's different than the change in ejection fraction we talked about. Okay? So follow me through with this carefully. Under normal resting, remember our ejection fraction was 70%. So we fill with 100, we pump out 70. In this case with this Frank Starling mechanism, and that's actually the names of the two different physiologists that sort of describe this phenomenon. It's not one person named Frank Starling. It's Otto Frank and I forget Starling's first name, but anyway. Uh, so in this case, if you increase venous return, you can do something to get more blood to fill the ventricle. So now we're filling with 150 milliliters. We contract with the same force uh, that, with that ejection fraction, so 70%. So now we'll pump out 105 instead of 70. Okay? 
So ejection fraction has not changed. This is solely based on filling. Fill with more, pump out more. Okay? Fill with more, pump out more. That's the Frank Starling mechanism. And it deals with venous return. Okay, getting more blood back to the heart, pumping more blood out. Alright, so what are the three things that we can do to get more blood back to the heart? First one is referred to as the muscle pump. Okay, the muscle pump. Um, when you pump, pump blood out into the systemic circulation, there is some motive force you know, to, uh, of the subsequent systoles to push blood through the system. But we know once we get into that capillary bed, what, ha what happens to blood pressure in capillaries? Is it 120 over 80? No, it's substantially lower. Okay, so you don't have a lot of um, pressure difference from the capillaries back to the heart to move that blood back to the heart. What we do have are muscles. And what happens is, and the other uh, interesting feature here, we know in our veins we've got these one-way valves. When we contract muscle, it squeezes on these veins that have blood in them. It pushes that blood back towards the heart. When the muscles relax, blood will want to fall back in this direction, but it's stopped by these one-way valves. Okay? So, rhythmic contraction and relaxation of muscle, like when you're walking, okay, rhythmic contraction, relaxation, essentially kind of milks those veins and pushes blood back towards your heart. Okay, so muscle pump. Extremely important to get venous return. And so when we exercise, what happens to skeletal muscle action? Contracts more, squeezes on you know, greater force of contraction, more frequent and more forceful squeezing on these veins, and that pushes blood back towards the heart. Increases venous return. Okay? Um, one of the things that we'll see, we've talked about the cardiovascular system being a positive pressure pump, moving blood by generating positive pressure. The pulmonary system is exactly opposite. It uses negative pressure, okay? Because what we do is we've got this airtight thorax here that we increase the volume which makes pressure go down and that helps pull air into our lungs. Okay? We'll talk more about the mechanics of breathing in a pulmonary system, but it's basically the, the relationship between volume and pressure. If you take a beach ball and you grab it and you squeeze it like this, you reduce its volume, so volume goes down, what happens to the pressure inside? It goes up. Now it's a little hard to picture, but let's take the opposite. If you grab that beach ball and pull it outwards, and increase the volume, what happens to the pressure inside? It'll go down. Okay, so the inverse relationship between uh, pressure and volume. So in the thorax, what you do basically is when you inspire, you use your respiratory muscles to cause your rib cage to come up and out like this, and your diaphragm goes down like this. So what happens to the, the volume in the thorax. If you go up and out like this and your diaphragm goes down, 
Intrathoracic volume increases, which makes pressure go down. Negative pressure. All right, so that helps us breathe in. But what else sits right in the middle of the thorax? The heart. Okay. So when you inspire and you create this negative pressure, that helps pull blood back. It creates sort of a suction effect that helps pull blood back towards the heart. So this is often referred to as the respiratory pump. Okay. And what happens to our ventilation when we exercise? Goes up. So there's increased action of this respiratory pump that helps pull more blood back towards the heart. So we've got muscle pump helping venous return, and we've got respiratory pump helping venous return. Okay. Veins have smooth muscle in their walls. Not as much as arteries and arterioles do, but veins have smooth muscle. And if we send sympathetic nervous system stimulation to that smooth muscle, what does the smooth muscle do? Contracts. Okay? So, if you sit here at rest, probably 60 to 65% of your blood supply is sitting over on the venous side. Okay? It's more of a reservoir, so you've got more of your blood supply on the venous side. So if you start exercising, what happens with sympathetic nervous system stimulation? Goes up or down? Up. Exercise is a stress. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation. We talked last time about how that affects uh, vasoconstriction, but in this case it also causes venoconstriction. So you've got all this blood sitting on the venous side. Okay, venoconstriction, you squeeze on it uh, and, and you contract those veins and that helps propel blood back towards the heart. Okay? So muscle pump, respiratory pump, and venoconstriction. Those things all help blood move back towards the heart. Um, when I was, I, I grew up in a little town outside of Orlando and uh, for the reasons only known to the federal government, I think, in the Department of Defense, they built one of the two largest uh, naval training centers uh, in Orlando. 50 miles from the ocean, you know. They actually built models of ships on the ground, uh, I guess, for them to do their training on. Anyway, my cousin, uh, uh, after he graduated from high school, enlisted in the Navy, so they sent him to the Orlando Naval Training Center for his basic training. When he was going to graduate, the family all gathered to, to see his graduation. And uh, so we sat there, and uh, it was probably July or August. I don't remember the exact month, but it was a summertime in Orlando. Uh, where it was probably 90-something degrees and 90-something uh, percent humidity. So we sat in the bleachers, and all the uh, uh, seamen came out and, and uh, arranged themselves in formation in the, in the parade ground. And it was all, this was long enough ago, it was all men. Uh, uh, arranged themselves in formation. They were in their dress whites and everything, standing at attention, while uh, some officer gets up and does a speech, has some speech. Some other officer gets up, another speech. Pretty soon, I'm looking out there and you're seeing these guys and one of them goes, blammo, hits the ground. Down he goes. They run, they're prepared for this because obviously it happens before. They run out and with a stretcher, scoop them up, take them away. <laughs> Sitting there, it's hot, everybody's sweating. Pretty soon, another one, bam, hits the ground. And I'm starting to think, this is our military. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm a little worried about these guys. 
So, uh, you know, they've just gone through whatever, 12 weeks of basic training. They're supposed to be in pretty good shape. Um, didn't really know what was going on until, you know, I don't know, 15 years later, I took a good cardiovascular physiology class. Um, so what do they tell you not to do when, you, when, you, when you're standing for long periods of time? They, don't tell, they tell you, don't lock your knees. Okay? Why do you not lock your knees? Isn't that more comfortable? Okay. Well, why does it mess up your blood supply? What happens? When you, when you, when you get that you know, long bones right on top of each other and you're not using the muscles in your legs, what happens? Muscle pump. Okay? You basically you're standing there and now you're not using your leg muscles as much. And when you stand normally, you're actually using, you don't see it very much, but you actually are making very fine adjustments in your balance and you're contracting and relaxing muscles in your legs to help keep your balance. Um, the advantage of that for cardiovascular system is those, those small contractions and relaxations help push blood back towards the heart. They also tell you, and, and, uh, and it's not just for foot comfort, but if you're going to stand for long periods of time, what about the surface that you stand on? Does that make a difference? They tell you not to stand on what type of surfaces? Hard surfaces. Hard surfaces provide a lot of stability. So once again, you don't have to use your balance, your muscles to balance yourself very much. If you're on really soft surfaces, your balance shifts a little bit more and you make these minor adjustments and contract your muscles. Okay? So don't lock your knees. Uh, don't stand on hard surfaces. Um, well, they're standing at attention, but they're not really exercising, so what's happening to their respiratory pump? Are they getting much action there to help blood coming back? No. It's also hot and humid. We haven't done thermoregulation yet, but one of our major adaptations or, or responses, if we get hot, if the body temperature starts going up, is where do we send blood flow? To the skin. Okay? We send blood flow to the surface of the skin to try to radiate off some of this heat. So they're standing there, more of their outgoing blood flow is going to their skin to try to radiate some of this heat, and we have reduced the impact of, uh, or the ability to return blood to the heart, okay? Key point with cardiovascular physiology, it doesn't matter how many times a minute your heart beats. If, it's, if the ventricle is not filling with blood, what's your cardiac output going to be? Okay? Doesn't matter. Your heart can beat 150 times a minute, but if it's not filling with any blood, you're not going to achieve any stroke volume or any cardiac output. Okay. Um, coronary artery branches are first. Carotid artery branches are next. If you're not getting adequate cardiac output, pretty soon you're going to get dizzy, lightheaded, and pass out. Okay. So that's what's happening in this case. Um, illustrates important importance of that muscle pump and that respiratory pump. Alright, afterload. Alright, so cardiac output. This is mean arterial pressure. Okay, mean arterial pressure. Alright, notice that that's, it's the numerator, so that's proportional. Uh, if you keep this constant down here, if you can make arterial pressure go up, what happens uh, uh, to cardiac output? Yeah, more driving force. Okay, so over here, this is total 
peripheral resistance. These are things that would create resistance to blood flow. If resistance goes up, cardiac output's going to go down. Okay, so things that cause resistance to blood flow is going to cause uh, cardiac output to be reduced. All right, we've mentioned this before uh, when we talked in, uh, in the neuromuscular section with uh, even very moderate levels of strength training uh, of certain exercises. But essentially, here's what happens. When you contract muscle, it squeezes on those veins and helps push blood back towards the heart. But when you contract muscle, it also squeezes on arteries and can help prevent blood flow from going uh, forward. Okay? Now, if this is rhythmic contraction, relaxation, contraction, relaxation, not much of a problem. But if it is more static resistance type exercise where you are contracting those skeletal muscles and holding that contraction for some period of time, what happens is these muscles pinch these arteries and it causes blood to back up in here and pressure goes up. Okay? That's afterload. That's increased resistance to blood flow. All right, let's think about preload. If preload goes up, holding everything else constant, if preload goes up, what happens to stroke volume? You got a 33 and a third percent chance. It either goes up, goes down, or stays the same. Goes up. You fill the blood with more heart, or fill the heart with more blood, it's going to pump out more blood. Okay? So if preload goes up, stroke volume goes up. In this case, the relationship is inverse. If you increase resistance to flow, if you increase afterload, the heart muscles pushing against greater pressure here, and not as much blood will be pushed out. Okay? If you hold those other things constant. So if you increase afterload or you increase resistance to flow, stroke volume goes down. Okay, now contractility. In with skeletal muscle, an individual skeletal muscle fiber, when it gets a stimulus, will act how? Individual skeletal muscle fiber will act how in terms of force production? What's the term we used? All or none. Okay, all or none. An individual muscle fiber doesn't have a way of grading or changing the amount of force it produces. It's either all of its force or none of its force. And so for a full muscle, we work with motor units by contracting more or less or faster or more synchronized motor units. Okay? This is one important distinction with heart muscle cells from skeletal muscle because they can produce more or less force. Heart muscle cells can produce more or less force. And it's basically dependent upon how much calcium is released uh, to trigger the contractile process. Okay? And, and so really, if you look at the left ventricle, if you look at both ventricles, they sort of act all as one motor unit. And so they can either contract with greater force or lesser force. 
And probably the major factor that influences contractility is sympathetic nervous system stimulation. So epinephrine, norepinephrine can cause the heart muscle to contract with greater force or lesser force. If you fill with the same 100 milliliters and you contract with greater force, your ejection fraction goes up. If you can fill with 150 milliliters and make your ejection fraction goes up, go up, your stroke volume will be even higher. Okay. Uh, with exercise, one of the things that we see is you get both the preload effect, we fill with more blood, so we're going to contract harder, and the sympathetic nervous system stimulation, we fill with more blood, but we also contract with greater force. So with high intensity exercise, your ejection fraction can go up to about 95%. So you're both filling with more blood and contracting with greater force, which causes your ejection fraction to go up, not quite to 100%. There's usually almost always some residual blood in the ventricle. But that helps us dramatically increase stroke volume and therefore increase cardiac output. Now, I want to make sure everybody's real clear on the distinction between the two. Contractility is not dependent upon volume. It's just the heart muscle itself contracting with greater force. Okay? It's just the heart muscle itself contracting with greater force, regardless of how much blood is in it. That Frank Starling mechanism is dependent upon volume. You have to increase the filling to get the increased force. Okay? So try not, don't confuse those two. Question. Yes. Essentially, epinephrine, norepinephrine from the, the stimulation from the sympathetic nerves, uh, causes the, the sarcoplasmic reticulum in your, in your heart muscle cells to release more calcium, so that in turn results in greater force of contraction. That's the pounding in your chest you feel when you almost get hit by the MARTA bus. Okay? You're, you're, you have released, your, your adrenal glands have squeezed out some epinephrine, and your sympathetic nerves have released norepinephrine, and those heart muscle cells pump out more calcium, and those heart muscle cells contract with greater force. Okay? So even if you still only have the same 100 mils in that left ventricle, you're going to pump out 80 or 90 because it's, it's going with greater force. Okay? All right. Now, all right, so this kind of puts all this in, in one, uh, one sort of a graph or a flow chart. So up here we've got stroke volume, and we've got our three. We've got preload. We've got afterload, and we've got contractility, all right? And um, proportional, if preload goes up, stroke volume goes up. Contractility is also proportional. If contractility goes up, everything else being equal, stroke volume goes up. Afterload's inverse, okay? If 
We want stroke volume to go up. We need this to go down. Okay? We need afterload to go down. And if afterload goes down, then stroke volume will go up. Now, we talked about one situation, like strength training, which causes afterload to go up. What about aerobic exercise? Um, have you all done the lab yet where, you, where you've done the uh, blood pressure responses to different exercise? Is that tomorrow? Oh, good. Well, we're, gosh, I'm almost back on schedule. Um, all right, one of the things that you should see, hopefully that you should see, um, with more intense exercise that's, that's shorter, more resistance-type exercise, you'll see systolic pressure go up. That makes sense. We've got to increase the driving force for blood flow. But you'll probably see diastolic go up too. Okay, And that's those muscles pinching those blood vessels and pressure's going up. But I think we've got a, an exercise bout that's more moderate intensity and a steady state aerobic type exercise bout. Um, if you need to increase cardiac output with aerobic exercise, will systolic blood pressure go up? Systolic. Think that'll go up? If, if you exercise, if you're just going for a nice easy run or ride on a bike, uh, do you need increased cardiac output? Yep. So do you need an increased driving force to increase that cardiac output? You're likely to have systolic pressure go up? Okay. What you'll likely see, though, with diastolic pressure is diastolic pressure is very likely to stay the same or actually even fall a little bit. Okay, because what we see with diastolic pressure uh, with aerobic exercise, this total peripheral resistance actually falls. Okay, remember last time we talked about how things that go on in exercising skeletal muscle can be used as a signal to tell the blood vessels feeding those, ves those muscles to do what? Signals like CO2 going up, O2 going down, those are used as signals to tell the blood vessels going into those muscles to do what? Dilate. Dilate. Vasodilate. So if those blood vessels are vaso or they're vasodilating, what happens to the resistance to flow? It goes down. So that's part of this total peripheral resistance. So regular aerobic exercise or, or exercising kind of steady state aerobic exercise, you get this big increased blood flow to muscles and you actually see total peripheral resistance go down some. So hopefully what you'll see in the lab with the aerobic exercise, you'll see systolic go up, which makes sense, increased driving force to get more cardiac output, but you should see diastolic stay the same or actually be down a little bit. Okay. Our total peripheral resistance is actually going to go down some. That helps stroke volume. If resistance goes down, the heart doesn't have to work against as big of a resistance so it can pump more blood out. Okay. Now, um, over here we talked about venous return. And so muscle pump, respiratory pump, um, venoconstriction, those things can help uh, venous return. Plasma volume can influence this too, and it's one of the things that we see with uh, dehydration. Okay, 
when people exercise in the heat, and particularly the humidity, you sweat a lot, you lose a lot of fluid. A lot of that fluid comes from your cardiovascular system, and you see your blood volume going down. Um, your plasma volume decreases, which makes it a little more difficult for us to return as much blood to the heart because our total blood volume is going down. Um, and I think I've got, where is it? This, this idea of cardiovascular drift, what happens when you exercise for long periods of time, this is actually probably real, realistically more like 90 minutes to 120 minutes, to, so two hours to three hours. People sweat a lot. They lose a lot of blood volume. What happens is their stroke volume goes down because they don't have as much blood for venous return. And if you're exercising at the same intensity, you have to compensate. So if you want the same cardiac output and your stroke volume is going down because your blood volume is going down, how, how can you maintain the same cardiac output? What's got to go up? Heart rate. Okay. So what you see sometimes with people when, they, when they're doing steady state exercise, uh, particularly in the heat like triathlons, uh, longer uh, marathons, that type of thing, is while they're exercising at the same steady state, their heart rate actually creeps up as the duration of the activity goes along, and it's usually related to their blood volume going down and their uh, stroke volume going down. They've got to compensate by their heart rate coming up. Okay? Okay. Let's see. All right, well, this sort of all puts it also in a flow chart. Okay, so over here we've got cardiac output, and we've got heart rate and stroke volume. Uh, this is sympathetic nervous system stimulation. We know that that can influence heart rate. It can in also influence stroke volume. We've got venous return. So we know if we can get venous return to go up, we can get increased uh, stroke volume and increased cardiac output. Here's that skeletal muscle activity, the skeletal muscle pump. Here's that uh, uh, respiratory pump, deeper breathing, helps pull more blood back. So that improves venous return. Uh, we should draw an arrow from this one to this one here because a sympathetic nervous system response... Oh. <laughs> That sympathetic nervous system. How's your heart rate? <laughs> All right, sympathetic nervous system response right here uh, will also cause that venoconstriction that helps that venous return. Okay. Um, then over here, sympathetic nervous system stimulation causes vasoconstriction in areas of the body that are not exercising. Okay, and we get the vasodilation in muscles that are exercising. So that helps improve blood flow to those muscles that are exercising. Okay, so that's blood flow to skeletal muscles. Kind of starting to get the the pattern. All this, how all this stuff is interrelated. Okay. <clears throat> 